Welcome to The Root of the Matter, brought to you by UPL. This podcast is dedicated to bringing you fresh ideas and insights about agriculture in North America. I'm your host, Ken Root. The topic of today's podcast may be familiar to you, but the issue of herbicide resistance continues to evolve. Our guest is a weed management professor from Michigan State University. Meet Dr. Aaron Burns. Aaron, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. I was looking at your bio. Uh, you know, we got to prove you got a good background to talk about weeds. <laughs> Were you a North Dakota bison? Actually, I did my master's at NDSU. I went to a small undergraduate uh, school in central Minnesota, the College of St. Benedict, for my undergraduate degree, but I was a bison for my master's, and they actually won their first uh, national championship in their string of many since then when I was there, so that was pretty exciting. What are your degrees in that led you to this uh, weed management professorship? So I have an undergraduate degree in general biology. I went to a fairly small um, liberal arts school, and that was um, that was the most detail that they had, so I took a lot of plant biology classes, and it was always interested in weeds and why they were growing everywhere we didn't want them to be growing and they could make it through just extreme um, extreme different scenarios. So from there, um, I learned about more weeds in agriculture. So I have a weed science degree from NDSU, like you mentioned, um, and then wanted to further my degrees um, and went to Montana State in Bozeman, Montana, and did my PhD there looking at uh, herbicide resistance in wild oat, which is a a troublesome grass species um, out west and in parts of Canada, which are largely just dominated by uh, by wheat rotation. So um, I looped back around to to the Midwest. I'm a I'm a native Minnesotan, so coming back to Michigan was was a nice refresher and got to start uh, my assistant professorship at my, uh, Michigan State University in 2017 and have been working here since then. The whole industry of weed control has occurred during my lifetime if you exclude cultivation uh, <laughs> with a hoe uh, or with a tractor. And we reached a point at one time, in fact, we did this a couple of times, uh, as I recall, that we thought weeds are no problem. We're going to be able to handle this. And then the weeds continue to evolve faster than the EPA did. And as a result of that, Aaron, we're kind of in a quandary right now. And I wonder if you can talk about this. We have a lot of old herbicides that worked well in their day, but they were upgraded through time. And then some of them Uh, especially glyphosate, which was used extensively through everything that's Roundup Ready, has stopped working on many weeds. Are there really any herbicides out there today that can control every weed? That's a great question. So I wouldn't say there's another herbicide that's is equal into like glyphosate, which was highly effective, uh, low in cost, and and can control weeds at a variety of different growth stages also. But we do have a number of of herbicides that are highly effective at controlling a subset of different weed species, so grasses or broadleaves, sometimes both of those, and in a variety of different crops. So it might not just be choosing one herbicide, such as glyphosate, and using it over and over again, which whenever you use the the same herbicide or the same herbicide within the same site of action, which is how we characterize herbicides 
um, using those over and over again will select for herbicide resistant weeds. So if we can diversify our herbicide use either in our rotation, across our rotation, we can preserve some of those, those chemistries longer than what we did with others. What's the real science here of what happens in that weed to make it herbicide resistant? So just by chance, just by natural genetic variation within plants or weed species, um, there can be a mutation that allows that plant to survive that herbicide application that would normally kill it. And then it produces seeds and those seeds or progeny, um, new seedlings the following year are also resistant to that that particular herbicide. And that goes over and over again until you eventually see a population in your field um, in which you'd be like, oh, I, I normally could control that weed. And, and now I'm starting to see um, some of those failures. So it's it's just through natural genetic variation and natural selection. So Darwin's principles of them a long time ago are what in play um, for our herbicide resistant weeds. Well, nature hates a void, as they say, <laughs> and the weed, the insect can fill that. And Farmers who think they're on the right path uh, sometimes find out they have to take another one. How far back does it go that we saw the first of uh, herbicide resistance? It's a good question. So I looked up um, weedscience.org is an international database that's maintained by Dr. Ian Heap of all different herbicide resistant cases throughout the, the world because it's a worldwide problem. You know, anywhere we're growing crops, we're, we're seeing herbicide resistant weeds. So the first case that was reported to that database was in 1957, which is wild carrot that was resistant to 240. And then we really didn't see a, a large uptick until the 80s in which there were 40 resistant cases. And now we have over 500. So we've really accelerated since the 80s and, and onward. Now, modes of action, let's slide these together. There are several different modes of action that how are how herbicides work. Have literally all of those been cracked by one or more weeds? Well, so according to that same website, there's resistant weeds to 21 of the thir- of the 30 known herbicide sites of action. So almost all of them, not quite all of them, and to over 164 different herbicides. So it's a fairly widespread problem. Um, some different modes of action have more herbicide-resistant weed species, some less, but doesn't just choose one or the other. Now, before we just totally talk about herbicides here, farmers all through history have rotated their crops for various purposes, either to get rid of something in the soil that they don't want for a future crop or to try to be able to uh, cultivate a crop and, and get rid of weeds. Do you recommend that there still is rotation that farmers should consider to be able to have another method besides herbicides to fight weeds? 100%. So that's one of our our greatest recommendations recommendations is increasing cropping system diversity. So if you can, you know, grow two crops, that's better than one. If you can do three in your rotation, that's better than two. Um, And that just goes for, A, you can use different herbicides and different um, different crops. So you're not using the same site of action over and over again. And also there's different planting times, row spacings, um, densities, growth rates. You can think of corn being much taller, providing more shade than, than soybean and, and all those different parameters that go along with um, making that crop more competitive and then not allowing those weeds to get used to that system um, to be able to exploit it. Let me aim toward new herbicides or Uh, new modes of action. 
there's no shortage of research, as I can tell. There's a great deal of money being spent. Is the issue the complexity of this, or is the issue the EPA, and it's uh, saying that a herbicide has to be safer uh, by whatever definition they have than the ones currently on the market, and therefore it's very hard for a new herbicide to rise up, go through registration, and get into use. I think there's a multitude of, of factors that are factors that are in play. One um, are the earlier herbicides that were discovered were obviously the easier ones. We had and there's lots of great targets within the plant biology in which plants and weeds have and and humans don't. So we could easily target some of those um, and discover those in a in a quick fashion. And then there's you know different regulatory restrictions that have increased over time. So I think those two probably play play in concert of us discovering the early modes of action that were just the easier ones to discover. And then um, now we're having to do a little bit more more work on that side uh, to do so. But but that would be a good question for someone who works in, in herbicide discovery to know exactly how kind of that framework has changed over time. Our guest is Dr. Aaron Burns, who's an assistant professor in weed management at Michigan State University. As we look at what's been done to offer farmers, growers, a way to combat weeds, I guess we should first of all consider what the world would be like if farmers had no herbicides. What would it be? Mechanical cultivation is all I can think of other than crop rotation. Have you ever considered, maybe you have, what it's like, would be like, if we had to go back to no chemical weed control? Well, it would be pretty difficult. As you mentioned, we just have mechanical uh, methods for weed control or cultural methods, so crop rotations and and things like that. So um, it might be more costly. We might see reductions in in yield or yields we weren't um, used to having when we have highly effective herbicides that control weeds um, and don't allow weeds to compete with crops to reduce yield. Um, so there definitely would be a different a different shift both in the output of our crops and then how costly that would uh, be to produce some of those crops also. I find an irony in what we've already talked about. You mentioned weed resistance to 2,4-D in 1957. That means yes. 2,4-D was a registered product well before you were born. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Oh, yes. <laughs> I, I'm not dividing your age by any means. No. Here. Yes, it was. <laughs> uh, maybe twice the time since you were born. Now we are still cooking up means by which we can utilize the same herbicides that we had so long ago by changing things around. And 2,4-D dicamba uh, products have been around a long time are being utilized in different formulations. It shows the links we'll go to to make nature adapt to what we want it to do, and it seems like nature fights that pretty hard. Yes, uh, selection and, and you know natural selection is a pretty pretty powerful uh, powerful element that's going on. So um, there are, I mean that that wild care case was, I mean there are two forty wild care populations currently still, but um, there's not as many. I would say oxenic, we call those oxenic herbicides uh, resistant cases that there are in some other sites of action. But if we're gonna you know start using those in soybean along with corn. Um, 
that's just an added selection pressure. So we'll have to be cognizant to use other other sites of action along with those uh, oxenic herbicides so we can preserve that technology for as long as possible. Therein lies the key. If everybody had put every herbicide down according to directions on the label, we wouldn't have as much of a problem as we have today. Is that a is that a potentially true statement? I mean, I think it's it's evolved. So I, I mean, most people are following label recommendations and and trying to you know follow those and applying you know labeled rates of herbicides also. And um, it's just also you know economics. If there's a herbicide that works well for you and it's in the the right, right price point and controls the weeds that are currently on your field, sometimes there's a bigger driver just to continue to use that herbicide because it you know it works and it has worked well and that's how we've you know selected for some of these issues. So sometimes trying out new new control tactics can have a having a learning curve and take a few seasons to get used to, but once you can you know employ those you can have long term results. Okay. There's probably some people listening now that say we haven't said a thing that they didn't already know <laughs> uh, because this has been front and center for several years. So let's talk about what they can do in the current times and your recommendations on management practices that growers should be looking into in dealing with weeds in the environment that's the reality of today. Right. So I don't think I have anything probably that's, you know, big shocker or brand new, but things that, you know, we have employed for a while and that we can start bringing it back because maybe we didn't. Um, used some of these for a while when we had glyphosate and that was working quite well. So it's, it's looking back at weed biology, what weeds do you have in your field? When do they emerge? What time are you applying those herbicides? You know, what kind of crops can we use to have them be more competitive with those weed species and ultimately reduce those seed inputs? Weeds are great at producing sometimes thousands um, of seeds that can go into the seed bank and be problematic in the following year. Um, So there's those general principles, which we term integrated weed management, just just using multiple tactics uh, to lessen the selection pressure for herbicide resistant weeds. But on the, you know, brand new side, there's a lot of research being um, put on to new herbicide resistant crops, also different uh, precision technology. So spot spraying or using drones to be able to identify weed species and and apply herbicides um, to their particular weed species and and tailor different things like that. So there's some pretty interesting research going on in in that area of of using that kind of technology that could definitely be employed in the future. Can you G-whiz us a little bit on these drones? Is it possible, in your view, for drones to do a job of spot spraying by detecting and actually spraying the weeds that uh, could be utilized by a grower? I think in the future, for sure, there's lots of great partnerships from engineering and weed scientists that are both looking at, can we identify these weed species in a, in a quick enough manner where we're going over and then applying a particular herbicide um, to, that, to that weed species, which is kind of how human, you know, human medicine is going. Also looking at your genes and giving you medicines tailored to yourself, similar to um, can we apply that in the future to weed species? And there's lots of 
great research going on. So can it be used probably today? Not so much, but in the future, that's that's definitely on the horizon. Aaron, what about switching crops? Sometimes it's hard to do. As you said, the farmers want to just do the same crop year after year. But let's take wheat and canola, for example. There are people that are rolling from one to the other for for weed control issues, if not uh, profitability. Should farmers that have the capability look at crops they haven't been growing to offset issues with weeds? Yes, that's a that's a great tactic. So I'm currently in Michigan, and we don't have as many herbicide-resistant cases as some other states because we do. Our, a lot of our growers do have, you know, corn, soybean, wheat rotations, and when you can um, buy wheat or canola, both crops that you could plant in the fall if you're growing the winter version of, of those crops, they're emerging at a much different time and competing with weeds at different times. You harvest them at different times, and all that kind of. Um, different different competitiveness that you can put in um, will really does pay off in the long term of driving down those those weeds that are in your you know, soil seed bank that will emerge then to to be problematic the next season. So yeah, if you can add another crop um, to your to your system that that has a long term payout. There are a few weeds uh, that are sort of the weeds from hell. Palmer amaranth is one of them that gets big enough to put out. I've heard 2 million weed seeds from one plant a year. It's resistant. Uh, you can make a Christmas tree out of it. And I'm wondering if, if weeds like that have a certain geography that they grow in and they won't move out of that geography. There was a threat that all of these were going to overtake Iowa and Minnesota and Michigan. What do you think is the status of some of those monster weeds that are in the south but not showing up much in the north it's a good question so at first we were really worried about new introductions of palmer amaranth um, also water hemp which is a closely related pigweed species that likes a little bit more of our cooler wetter conditions uh, farther north in which we have seen more of an expansion but not the original kind of doom and gloom takeover that we thought would happen in a few years. But we, you know, humans learn from other people's experiences. So I think different states were able to learn what was what was working and what was not from other states that were currently fighting that issue and then have the have the leg up on being able to control some of these weeds, um, both through diversifying herbicide selection, but then also through different crop rotations. So I think we've we've been able to learn from that, and by no means are they not an issue. Um, we have a large water hemp issue here, but it's not in um, you know every field like we once expected it to be. Aaron, I assume you get to interact with growers some, if not a lot. Can you give me an overview of the attitude of a grower who's trying to deal with these resistant weeds and whether they are hopeful or determined or uh, resigned to their fate? <laughs> I, in general, I think I, growers are, are hopeful and, and they're, you know, they're smart and they're doing their own research on their field every day by trying out different things, learning you know, what worked for them and what different you know, didn't work for them. And then um, calling you know, various weed scientists and, and running by what they, what they found. And then we can help kind of put some science behind some of the trends of what they're seeing. So I think um, I think they're hopeful. It's definitely can be difficult when you have, you know, big weed escapes or, or populations that are no longer controlled in that, in that season that you experience that. 
but you you know you learn from that and we try to put together uh, good programs for different growers and and trying new things so it's both an avenue i think for everyone to to learn and try to try new things and at the same time um moving forward and trying to continue to to grow crops and doing that um you know sustainably both for the environment and also economics of that of that particular um farming operation Let's talk herbicides here for a moment, and you may use them generically or in brand names, however you want to do it. But I'd like for you to comment on going backward, meaning going back to products that worked, that were a little more difficult to utilize because they had to be pre-planned, incorporated, or herbicides that you know had a major role in the 80s, but they were outdistanced by Roundup and a few others in recent times. Should growers consider that there are solutions to their problem that aren't necessarily the latest and the greatest? Yeah, I think that's, you know, that's a good approach. So just because something, you know, went out of fashion doesn't mean that um, it doesn't have utility now. And we just need to uh, be able to learn how to how to put those if it's either, you know, placements in the soil, as you said, with pre-plant incorporated herbicides, which, you know, we haven't used as much, um, but are definitely have their utility, also have their utility in some of the, we were extremely dry this last spring, so we're going to have some implications both on, you know, climate variability and how that'll interact with with herbicides. So by no means is, you know, are the old things should be put away and not used in, in the future. It's just learning how to use those tools once again. And maybe now we have a better idea also of how to, you know, employ those in a little easier manner. So it's just being able to, to learn and, and, and get those going once again. Let's turn the lights off and let you scare the hell out of us for a moment. Mm-hmm. What about climate change and how that could be an issue, good for weeds, bad for farmers? Or if we don't get any new herbicides, or what happens to our food system as far as the cost? If we are limited in ability to keep our production up in the future? Well, the cost could, you know, greatly increase if we're having to either put in a lot more inputs, be those, you know, different herbicides, different, you know, mechanical operations or um, going to straight, you know, old school tactics, like we mentioned earlier of just uh, manpower and and taking out those weeds by, by hand, that's all going to be quite, quite costly. And, and that could be exacerbated by changes in in climate. So we've had a much you know variety of different springs from being overly wet to dry to you know right in the middle, which is what we need. So that'll that'll change what we can grow, how effective some of our our herbicides are. We were dry this year, so we had some issues with some of our pre-emergence herbicides not being as effective as they would be um, historically. So those will all have you know end of the the road implications on being able to uh, sustainably produce these crops long term and be able to uh, to feed a, a global population that is increasing. I'm not sure the consumer really cares. Definitely most consumers don't know the competition weeds can put forth and also what a grower goes through. You mentioned dry weather when your herbicide doesn't work. Uh, I also went through a period of time with the new ebonazolinones in the 80s when the herbicide carried over to the next year. But in the case of too wet, we have times when growers with big fields 
can't get in to spray in time to control weeds that get ahead of them and they either have a, a yield loss or a total loss. Uh, I'm sure you've seen that a few times, haven't you? Yes, that's a great point. That's what we're currently going through now. So we were dry during planting, which was a different change. So everyone could plant on time, which was great. You could get in and do that. Um, and then in the in the past week here in Michigan, we've had over five inches of rain. So now people can't go in and spray and it's been hot and humid. So the crops and the weeds both like that. So everything's growing quite quickly. So, you know, weather can have yeah, a multitude of of roles of, of how we try to control weeds in, in our current practices. Well, Dr. Aaron Burns, weed scientists to me have been an illustrious bunch, uh, almost famous in some states. And I'm not sure you're off of that very much in your state. So I'm sure you get to speak to growers. Give me your best spiel right now of what you're advising growers about how they can manage weeds, what their best practices are. What's your short spiel that gives them some direction and some hope. Well, great. So first is scout. So go out and look at what weeds are in your field. Um, what are troublesome? When are they troublesome? What herbicides did you apply? And you know, what does your weed um, species look like afterwards? Because knowing what weeds are in your field is the first, first step in helping us be able to formulate a plan um, to control those weeds. The second is looking into rotational diversity and the sites of action that you're using. So lots of times we'll have people write down what herbicides they used, what sites of action those are, and look at how many we're using over time. And if we can diversify those um, both through the current rotation or adding in different crops that have different planting dates and, and competitiveness overall. So that would be the first three things. And then if you do have herbicide resistant weeds in your field, harvest those fields last. Don't spread uh, those weed seeds to fields that don't currently have that issue. So keep that issue isolated if you're if possible. And then finally, there's lots of great experts across the U.S. that are working in weed science. So contact those experts in your state. We're, we're, here, we're here to help and um, to formulate a good weed management plan that, that works for you over time. So uh, there's lots of lots of great research going on, and everyone's willing to share that. So, so utilize those resources. I drive across the country quite a bit, uh, and I always look at the fields. And every once in a while, I'll see a spot in a totally clean field where there's weeds. Is the likelihood those are an escape resistant weed that's breaking out right there in that area? There's probably two factors. So it could be you know, a population of herbicide resistant weeds that you can finally see. So, you know, when it first happens, if there's just one, usually if you're growing quite, you know, farms can be pretty large. You're not going to pick up that one individual. It takes a few seasons to see that. So it could be a population that was able to you know, survive that herbicide application. It could be a wet spot in that field. Lots of times we'll We'll see that in which um, there's different reasons why those those weeds uh, survived in that particular area um, or differences with um, sprayer skips or topography and keeping those those sprayers straight and um, going at a little bit slower miles per hour sometimes to get thorough coverage. So there's a few different um, both kind of mechanical reasons, weather reasons, and then ultimately um, if they are resistant populations. Is there anything uh, you'd recommend on a website to go to or anything like that for growers? 
Um, so on the university side, every university who, who does weed science uh, usually has a, a weed science page. So ours is msuweeds.com, but um, pick your state and probably Google that university's name and weed science, and, and you'll find a great uh, website that'll have resources from weed ID to uh, herbicide efficacy trials to, you know, research that different students are doing, you know, just a large a large variety of, of results that you can find on those. Very interesting. Well, Dr. Aaron Burns, I think Michigan State has a real winner with you in their weed management program. And uh, I appreciate your dedication and that of other weed scientists I've met across the country who continue to beat that drum of what growers need to do to be able to at least fight with the weeds and try to keep up as much as possible. Thank you very much for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me and uh, bringing to light the, the issue of herbicide resistance and, and what, what to do moving forward. Thanks for listening to The Root of the Matter, sponsored by UPL. New episodes will be available every other Monday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Have a great day.